Welcome to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me for interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. In the past few years, nothing has captured our attention more than artificial intelligence. Siri and then Alexa became the darlings of pop culture, giving us the weather report on demand, knowing our music preferences, and even replacing E.T. to phone home. That was a novel, fun, and convenient opportunity at our fingertips. But what about the application in health and wellness? How can we use artificial intelligence, including technologies like virtual reality, voice and facial recognition software? In my latest book, The New Mobile Age, How Technology Will Extend the Health Span and Optimize the Lifespan, I explored how these emerging technologies are already impacting health, wellness, and helping our aging society stay connected, vital, and independent. As AI moves forward and ubiquitous digital tools like smartphones, tablets, and trackers gather real-time human life and behavior, this knowledge will provide greater insight about the inner emotional state of individuals. Combine that with automated coaching, emotionally aware technology, will really create a boom in self-help. These tools can provide what conventional healthcare cannot, in the moment intervention and guidance. And when it comes to virtual reality, my next guest is doing some groundbreaking work in therapeutic VR. Brennan Spiegel is studying the use of VR technology to help patients suffering from various forms of pain related to medical conditions and surgery as well as novel VR solutions for managing high blood pressure. Today, I'm having a conversation with Brennan Spiegel, MD, MSHS. Brennan is the Director of Health Services Research for Cedars-Sinai Health System. He's a professor of medicine and public health at UCLA. He's co-chair of the VRAR Association Digital Health Committee, and I'm sure we're going to learn more about that because I know that's a really uh, exciting area of interest for Brennan. We're delighted to have Brennan. Brennan uh, directs Cedars-Sinai's Center for Outcomes Research and Education, which is also called CS Core, which is a multidisciplinary team that investigates how digital health technologies, including wearable biosensors, smartphone applications, virtual reality, and social media can strengthen the doctor-patient bond, improve outcomes, and save money. And God knows we all want all of those. As a member of the FDA Field Advisory Committee, Brennan also develops endpoints for clinical trials. His uh, research team receives funding from the NIH, uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Hearst Foundation, Veterans Administration, uh, and Relationships with Industry. He's editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, the leading clinical gastroenterology journal in North America. Uh, And he's also had some uh, work in the private sector. He co-founded My Total Health, a digital health company developing novel smartphone applications, such as My GI Health, that provide value to patients, physicians, and health systems. 
He's also invented Abstats, an FDA-cleared wearable biosensor that non-invasively monitors human digestion. So it's clear we have a tremendous amount in common, and will be fun to talk to Brennan. Welcome to the podcast, Brennan. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it should be very, very exciting. So you're a frequent speaker at many major conferences. I might add, including the Connected Health Conference, which I'm the content chair for. Uh, so I'll put a little plug in for our conference. But recently, you hosted a, a new conference called Virtual Medicine, uh, the first international symposium dedicated to medical virtual reality. So, and I know that's a really intense interest of yours. The conference took place in May, and I'd love for you to tell us how it went. What were some of the key takeaways? Uh, what's next? Are you going to do it again? Just tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah. So we held a conference, as you said, that's really focused on the role of immersive technologies like virtual reality and others, augmented reality, mixed reality, in healthcare. And we know we know that virtual reality has become uh, increasingly popular, mainly for gaming and entertainment. But we've known also for decades that there's a therapeutic value for virtual reality across a number of different conditions. And up until recently, all of that research has been kind of quietly happening in university laboratories, in elite kind of, you know, universities, generally in psychology departments, sometimes for, you know, the defense or the military. It's been kind of happening in the background without it really coming into the front pages. And that's mainly because until recently, we haven't had access to scalable, inexpensive, high-quality virtual reality headsets that we could actually use in a clinic or in a hospital. But now we have that, and what our group and others have been doing is trying to understand what is the role of these technologies right there in the clinical trenches. For example, using VR to manage pain uh, rather than opioids, or using it to reduce blood pressure, or for anxiety, for stroke rehabilitation, for phobias, and for a wide variety of other conditions. So. Because this field has been evolving, we decided to put this, uh, this symposium together, and we held it at Cedar sinai and it turned out to be a sold-out event. We are definitely doing it again next year. If you want to learn more about the symposium, you can go to the website. It's virtualmedicine.health uh, or virtualmedicine.org. And on the website, you can learn about the, the symposium, but you can also watch all of the videos. So we recorded everything, all the talks, and because it was a VR conference, we recorded it in virtual reality as well as in regular 2D reality. So you can literally put on a headset and experience what it was like to be inside the theater um, during the presentations. And we also live streamed it in VR with help of Samsung. And at one point, we had about 1,000 people tuned in around the world in addition to our sold-out audience. So it was a very exciting uh, symposium. It's all there if, you, uh, if your listeners want to check it out. And uh, yeah, this is it. we'll be doing it again, and we'll be announcing those dates very shortly. So you can follow us um, either on Twitter or on uh, the website for more updates on that. Yeah, fa fabulous, and and I'm it's so much fun to talk to you about this. And I, I should have said earlier when I was doing your intro and your bio, but really, uh, people should know that Brennan Spiegel is really the driving force behind moving virtual reality into healthcare delivery. And uh, it's, it's really such a pleasure to be able to talk to you about it and, and to congratulate you on the difference that you've made in this regard. Because as you said, the, 
the applications are uh, perhaps unending, but, but things like pain relief and other sort of digital therapeutic type uh, applications, really fabulous, and it's great to, uh, to hear about the success that you're having. Now, I know you do other things. Your research at Cedars-Sinai includes a range of technologies, uh, including wearable biosensors, mobile apps, electronic health records, portals, social media. I know you're a very, very prominent social media. Uh, and a significant research is in virtual reality. I know you published last year study results of uh, VR helping patients suffering from GI, cardiac, neuro neurological, and post-surgical pain. Uh, and you've also spoken about the development of novel VR solutions for managing uh, blood pressure. So again, uh, just keying off of, of that, what do you see as the, let's go 10 years out. How, what, what's it going to look like? Now, you said we've got cheap headsets. What else is needed to make this thing really go mainstream? Right, yeah. So we now know that VR works. Uh, there's really little debate about that. Uh, there, there have now been meta-analyses of randomized control trials demonstrating the therapeutic benefits of VR. And, you know, people ask questions about it, like, well, is it, is it only when they're in the headset or what happens when they take the headset off? And the answer is, you know, there's actually persistent benefits even after the headset is removed. Uh, almost just like yoga or mindful meditation or other, you know, you know, other techniques that are thousands of years old that we know work, you don't need to sit on a yoga mat all day in order to draw upon what you've learned uh, practicing yoga. If you're in a stressful situation, for example, you can draw upon those skills when, when you need them. So what I'm getting at is that VR does, it works in a similar manner, and we can talk about its mechanisms if we're interested, but it works. So the question is, well, how do we implement it and, and scale it? And a lot of this will have to do with payers. Mm -hmm. Just like any other biomedical innovation, somebody needs to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And here we have a device that costs generally about $30 for, like, let's say, a Samsung VR gear. And now we have the $200 Oculus Go, and there's a number of different headsets, and there will be more and more. Um, but somebody has to pay for them. Is this the hospital's responsibility to have a virtual reality consult service in the hospital? Mm -hmm. uh, is it a uh, third-party payer's um, responsibility or patients bearing the cost? So we have a new study that will be published shortly in uh, digital medicine. Uh, you may, your your uh, listeners may be aware that digital medicine is a new journal that came out this year. Eric Topol at Scripps uh, and Steve Steinhubble created this journal, which is really dedicated to this kind of research, the sort of research you do and I do and others in the digital health science field. It's a terrific new publication. So we have a paper coming out in digital medicine focused on the health economics of virtual reality. Uh, it so happens when, in my other life, I also teach uh, cost-effectiveness analysis in our school of public health. And uh, our, I got together with our grad students, and we modeled out what the potential return on investment would be using the best data that we have available to us about VR if a hospital were to create a VR consult service, a virtualist, a doctor who goes around and prescribes tailored VR therapies to patients. And uh, we kind of estimated and projected the ROI. And bottom line is, in sort of simulations, about 86 to 87% of the time, we anticipate that having VR as a service in the hospital will, in fact, save money. And so what we're hoping is that evidence like that and others can begin to change the conversation, not just to the science, which is terrific, but also to the policy and support of this technology. I think that's the major thing. But the other 
big answer to your question in terms of the future is for this to be scaled, again, whether we're talking about an app, the sort of apps that you guys develop, or whether it's virtual reality, it has to somehow be baked into the backbone of modern American medicine, which is the EHR. Mm-hmm. So if I have a doctor that wants to prescribe VR, right. there should be an order set right there in the EHR. Yep. Um, and there should be a VR pharmacy where we go yes. out and we bring in just the right um, prescription of immersive experiences to that patient, whether it's in the hospital or in the outpatient environment. So I can go on and on. I'll stop there. But those are some initial thoughts about it. Yeah, I like that. That really resonates with a lot of the discussion we've had on these alternative digital therapeutic type scenarios, how there, there is no pharmacy, there is no order set. You're quite right. Those are workflow things are very, very important. Uh, I want to switch gears for a minute. Uh, we'll probably come back to virtual reality because, as I said, it's incredibly exciting and you are the authority. But I know something else you've been doing recently because I follow your Twitter feed it is uh, – teaching a course uh, in digital health. And I wanted to get some reflections on how that went or is going. I'm not sure if it's done yet. Uh, Tell me a little bit about who the students were, medical students, or just give me the rundown because I think, once again, it's groundbreaking that uh, you're able to do that and we all want to learn from uh, you as you learn from your own uh, work. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I'll tell you, um, first thing I'll say is that one of the – Readings is your own book, so the Internet of Healthy Things. So we're also learning from you in the process. I think everyone's learning from each other. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a new master's degree program here, uh, an accredited program that uh, I direct. It's a master's degree in health delivery science. And the health delivery science, as we envision it, really has four pillars in sort of modern medicine. Uh, that includes health analytics, everything from biostatistics to data visualization and just mm-hmm. general healthcare numeracy. Uh, the second big pillar is uh, quality improvement and evaluation. Um, the third is cost effectiveness analysis and healthcare financing. But the fourth pillar is digital health science and informatics. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, I've been teaching a new class, uh, which we call digital health science. And in the class, um, we cover a range of topics, uh, including, you know, wearable biosensors and what do we know about them, um, best practices in mobile health, app development, um, social media as an epidemiologic database for social media ethnography, ethnographic research and epidemiologic research. We talk about certainly the electronic health record in detail uh, and best practices around EHR. Uh, It is not a course in informatics per se, Although we certainly hear from inf- uh, informaticians, um, and uh, but it's really more of an applied clinical science type of course. Our students are, we have 20 students per year, it includes some medical students, it includes physicians, we have uh, nurses, pharmacists, a very professionally diverse group of learners. Um, and uh, they, uh, what they end up doing is as a final project, uh, they get into groups and they have to identify a, a digital health um, uh, intervention, a product or service that's out out there. And they uh, select it, they profile it, they determine whether or not it was developed using best practices in uh, sort of uh, design thinking um, and engaging end users. Uh, there's the ideas framework of MUMA at all that we use that they uh, apply in their assessment of the technology. But the cool thing is they also 
conduct formal cost-effectiveness analyses and budget impact models from the perspective of a large health system. So we asked them to imagine that they are doing this work for Cedars-Sinai, our home base, and have to create a report for leadership about whether or not Cedars-Sinai should invest in this technology. So that requires that they actually do health economic modeling and project out the cost-effectiveness and budget impact if we were to actually adopt the technology. So the whole idea is an integrated multidisciplinary curriculum where they learn not only about digital health science and what do we know about this evolving field and best practices, but also how to integrate the health economics with um, in design thinking and everything else um, and sort of roll it all up into one. And, and so is that first uh, course complete now? Are you in the middle of it? Where, where are we in the journey? Yeah, yeah, we've actually finished the course. Uh, the students are now moved on to their next uh, uh, term, and they've completed the course. And, uh, you know, I think it went real well. We'll see how, how the evaluations come back. Uh, but, you know, from everything I've heard, I think the students have really enjoyed learning about this material uh, and really trying to understand it formally um, and, uh, you know, engaging with a, a wide variety of different companies in the process of kind of learning about, you know, these technologies. Any, any uh, thought about taking it online to, a, to one of those online platforms and doing it mm -hmm. uh, virtually? Definitely been asked that question, and it's of interest to us for sure. Um, you know, currently our uh, program is an accredited program, so part of it is uh, having to get approval from our accreditation body just technically, but I am very interested in making it available uh, more broadly, uh, not just for uh, you know, the public to consume, but also so we could have online learners that could potentially, you know, not be co-located here in Los Angeles. But uh, so if there's an interest in that, then uh, we we are interested in, you know, potentially making that available and making the degree program available um, beyond Cedars-Sinai as, as we expand out this program. Well, again, I, I think incredibly exciting to see the, the uh, uh, scholarly approach uh, to something that uh, when I started doing it, I, I was um, many days felt like the lone voice howling in the wilderness or the lunatic fringe or something like that. So it's great to see your uh, efforts in the area to, to uh, legitimize this, this incredibly important topic. Uh, I have maybe I'm one, one or two. Good to add to that. Please. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm no? just to, just to give you some feedback on this. I think what you've been doing from the beginning is, is so valuable to set the stage and to sort of create a blueprint so that people like me who come along a little bit later have some sort of a guidebook, which, you know, your books have, have provided. And, you know, it's very important, I think, for, uh, for physician scientists in, in particular to take a leading role in understanding rigorously, you know, what works mm -hmm. and just as importantly, if not more importantly, what doesn't work. Right. When doing this kind of research, because, you know, there's a lot of um, promises sometimes <laughs> from the Silicon Valley echo chambers. Yeah. Uh, and I often hear promises from stakeholders who are not clinicians um, <laughs> or digital health experts who have never actually been in a clinic mm -hmm. and applied a digital health product to a patient. Yeah. To me, that's kind of like being a pharmacist but never having filled a script <laughs> or being a cartographer and never having drawn a map. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard for me to say somebody's a digital health expert if they've never been in the clinic working with patients or even just seeing patients and hearing from patients directly as they use 
and interact with these technologies because there's, as you know, so many unexpected consequences uh, and side effects and, and just the phenomena that occur when you bring technology into a busy clinical environment. So anyway, that's just my little soliloquy on the importance of what you've done and, and hopefully more and more physician scientists will be engaging in this field. Yeah, well, uh, uh, t- tip of the hat to, to your to your efforts for sure. Uh, I wanted to ask, I want to drill into VR again for just a minute and ask you about something you've talked about and written about, the moment of cog- cognitive immersion and the moment of physiologic immersion. Can you talk, you know, like wa- walk us through what that means, un- unpack that a little bit for me? Sure, yeah. So this refers back to the uh, virtual reality research. And, um, you know, this is uh, something we've observed just as we treat patients with immersive technology like virtual reality. And, you know, you can kind of tell when it's working um, because as we observe patients, we notice sort of two different phases that they go through when they're first interacting with VR. And the first is this moment of cognitive immersion or maybe another term is the moment of conscious immersion uh, where the patient sort of recognizes that for the first time they're in a different kind of media environment, that they are surrounded and they had experienced what the VR scientists call presence, the presence of suddenly being transported somewhere else. And you'll see them smile or laugh or say, oh, my God, or, you know, some kind of uh, reaction. That's the sort of moment of cognitive immersion or, or conscious immersion. Uh, but maybe more interesting is, in general, about four to six minutes later, as the brain is kind of getting used to this novel experience, that it then sort of switches on to the brainstem kind of reaction. And you see the patient uh, sort of slow down their breathing, depending upon what kind of experience they're having. Um, blood pressure might drop. The body language changes. And in some cases, they're almost literally hypnotized um, inside of the VR. Uh, so that's kind of that second phase uh, that you were referring to, uh, sort of the physiologic immersion uh, where the body itself is now responding to the rhythms of the VR. Really, really interesting. Interesting. It reminds me when, when I was a, uh undergraduate, I was a psych major, and like the first psychology course I took was perception, and it was so eye-opening to me that, you know, just, just to learn a little bit from that perspective. So this reflects on, on a lot of that kind of same... Uh, uh, the relationship with what we see in here to physiology. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to uh, wrap up the VR part by asking you if you would give us a little, I'm sure people would be really eager to hear your version of a, a bit of a primer on, not, not, not exhaustive, but sort of the technologies out there, who's doing it right, where, where, where do you see the real gems? I've I remember when the New York Times sent me a, a, a little piece of cardboard that I could stick my smartphone in, and, and I, I didn't find that very, very uh, 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 helpful. And, uh, and I know things have come a long way since, but it is, for some of us anyway, I think it's a little bit daunting to look out there and see what, what the best thing to do. Where's the best bang for your buck? How does it all work? Can you comment on that? Sure, yeah. There's a, there's a, a growing number of companies that are involved now in therapeutic virtual reality, kind of across the breadth and depth of use cases. Uh, Probably the most prominent now is Applied VR, 
Uh, I should say I have no equity in this company or anything else, although we do use their products for purposes of research. Um, but Applied VR is a uh, company out here in Los Angeles that uh, has created a platform specifically for patients to use, um, and they also have some of the, some unique software focused on pain management in particular. And we've had some very positive experiences, and we've used their uh, technology in our clinical trials and have validated it. So Applied VR is definitely one uh, company uh, that I see that's doing a lot of work in this area. Uh, but there are many others. Um, you know, the, the big, certainly the big brands like Samsung and Hewlett Packard, and they all have uh, increasing interest in this. Uh, they have technologies they're developing. Uh, I know David Rue, Chief Medical Officer at Samsung, gave a terrific talk at Virtual Medicine, our conference that you can watch online, where he talks about all sorts of opportunities they're, they're pursuing at Samsung, everything from you know diabetic retinopathy to stroke rehabilitation. Uh, it's pretty fantastic stuff that they're working on there. So that's an example of a big electronics company trying to do serious research in in uh, in healthcare. Uh, and then there's just so many other companies. I mean, there's one called Limbix, uh, another called Mind VR, M-Y-N-D-V-R, that are doing work really in psychotherapy. Uh, there's a really neat company, or I'm not even sure if it's a company, it's called the Dolphin Swim Club uh, out in Europe, where they've done some beautiful, very therapeutic uh, videos of swimming with dolphins and swimming with other kind of sea creatures. And our patients really love what they have. Uh, and that's all for more on the therapeutic side. There's also interesting, re- you know, uh, work being done on the physician training side. So, you know, there's a company, uh, I think it's called Optera, uh, that is doing research and training surgeons about how to manage problems in the, in the operating room. Surgical Theater is another company doing work in the surgical training, particularly for neurosurgery. Uh, and there are just so many others. I'm afraid to even keep on um, sort of, you know, just mentioning companies. Yeah. Healing Healthcare Systems, uh, Mandala Health, and others. So, wow. you know, it, it is growing right now, and that's what makes it kind of an interesting time. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, uh, uh, I, one, one uh, just interesting fact that I ask all uh, uh, clinicians that I do this with, what, what's your clinical cl- commitment these days? How often are you in patient care versus doing all this other stuff? Yeah, it's, you know, there's, there's n- never enough hours in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, it's still very important to be a doctor mm-hmm. uh, and to see patients and engage with patients. That's first and foremost what I am and who, who I am as a doctor. Right. Uh, and that guides everything that I think about and do from a research standpoint. Uh, I have a half-day clinic a week with uh, the fellows here at Cedars-Sinai. So, you know, that's about 10% time mm-hmm. uh, seeing mm-hmm. patients. And I also still work in the hospital about four weeks a year, four to six weeks a year on our inpatient consult service doing, you know, run-of-the-mill gastroenterology stuff. Although what's right. fun is that I always have the VR headset with me. So if I have patients that might benefit, I, I pull that out too. <laughs> right after doing an endoscopy, let's say. Um, so I'm always trying to bring the two together. Uh, but yeah, about 10% of my time and the rest of my time is uh, the other, you know, whatever it is, uh, 190% is dedicated to um, doing research and, and my role as a health services research director here at Cedars-Sinai, trying to find Beautiful. ways to kind of spread this type of work across the health system. Brennan, it's been a real pleasure. Is there anything that I should have asked or anything else you want to uh, speak about for our listeners before we wrap up? No, I think by now they probably 
probably heard enough, but I just want to thank you for uh, the opportunity. And I think what you're doing here with podcasts is very important as we continue to kind of share best practices and know-how throughout the digital health uh, community. And who knows, maybe it won't be called digital health anymore. I think people are starting to tire of that term. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see in the future what we call this, whatever it is that we're doing. But I think yeah. having connectors like you and obviously having the Connected Health Conference, which is a terrific one, uh, are very important contributions to, to the field. So thanks for the invitation. And thanks for what you're doing. And we thank you for your support. Take care now. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Each episode, we take a moment to answer one question from our followers in a segment my team likes to refer to as Ask Joe. Today's question is one that is relevant to many of our followers. The digital health market is expected to hit 60 billion by 2020. Even with all these technologies, why is it so hard to get people healthy? And I, I really love this question because I've been thinking uh, about it a lot lately, and, and I think it boils down to several things. Uh, I would say, not to overuse the term, but, but a perfect storm of activities that make it hard for us to use uh, connected health to achieve real behavior change in, in healthcare. The first is, is that we're surrounded by opportunities for unhealthy choices, whether it be the foods that are in front of us at the supermarket or the fact that we uh, always drive our car to the closest parking spot, we never take the stairs. We've convinced ourselves as a society that we can overeat and be underactive and that that's the norm. Uh, that's just one example. There, there are many other examples of, of where we've taken this approach that is counter to being healthy. Uh, so that's one side of it. A second side of it is that the illnesses that we now face, you know, 70% of our uh, costs are lifestyle-related illnesses. Those illnesses are almost all illnesses that don't create symptoms. I don't know why this is. I'm fascinated by it. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes in its early stages do not create symptoms. And so we can go on with our unhealthy behaviors be creating these illnesses and not get any feedback loop from them. So I think that's an enormous challenge uh, as well. And then finally, uh, we, we simply have a healthcare system that is uh, not geared towards taking care of this kind of illness or preventive health. It's geared towards acute care, and that's a challenge as well. So Connected Health can help with all of those because it enables us to get those feedback loops uh, that are like the symptoms that I talked about. So checking your step count is a way to remind you that you need to be more active. Checking your uh, uh, weight on a smart scale is a, a way to remind you about your calorie balance. These are all important tools to create feedback loops that we can use to stay healthy. And we have our own set of work to do in healthcare delivery because we need to move from a one-to-one -one model of care to a one-to-many model, and that's probably something we can cover in a future segment. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question you'd like answered on a future episode, send it to us via social media with a hashtag AskJoe, and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming podcast. 
Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavita. A special thanks from me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.